Welcome to Edify Presents at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Please welcome our hosts for this evening, Edify founders, Liam Klimick and Will Reed. Cheers, guys. We're, uh, we're really, really excited to have you here again for another Edify Presents. Um, another kind of opportunity to hear about uh, the backbones of a, an industry that we don't really hear too much about. So without further ado, I will introduce our amazing guests. Please welcome James, Nick, Rob, and Andy. Hello. Hello, hello. Thank you for joining us. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Uh, so like we always do with our panels, uh, sort of Nick, if, if we're okay to start with you, just a sort of uh, quick two-minute intro on, um, on who you are and, and what you do in the promotions world, I suppose. Um, yeah, I work for a company called Boiler Room, um, and I run a party called Principles with two friends. And I've just started a record label, uh, which is an imprint of Young Turks Records, and that's called Whitey's. Um, and I also work at Fonica Records, just up the road. And yeah, that's, that's me, pretty much. My name's James. I run two brands. One of them's called Urban Nerds. It started in East London about seven years ago and was primarily and is still primarily a brand that was devoted to all sorts of strands of UK-based music. Started originally with, with the evolution of grime and dubstep at quite an exciting time. And um, that sort of progressed into warehouses and, and clubs and all sorts across, across London and various festivals. And I also run a fairly new festival called Found, which started at Haggerston Park in Shoreditch last summer and is back this summer. And um, we do various indoor and outdoor shows, again, across London. And that's a younger brand that's been going for, for two and a half years. I'm Rob. Um, I run Main Stage Travel. We do um, a load of summer clubbing holidays to summer clubbing islands. And we do um, something called Snowbox Festival, which is a... 2,000-person festival out in Andorra. Um, it's in about 10 days, so very soon. And, uh, yeah, second largest um, skiing festival in Europe. So, yeah, that's me. Uh, I'm Andy. I'm the owner, or one of the owners, of XOYO and The Nest clubs in London. I book all the music and run the promotion team uh, for those clubs, as well as run, um, running the music for a pub called The Old Queen's Head in Angel. Um, I've booked Southwest Fall Festival for nine years and I've been a promoter for about 12 years. Thank you. So um, the first thing we always like to do is sort of uh, set the scene, as it were, for everybody. A lot of people are probably familiar with what you guys are doing at the moment and especially after the, bearing in mind you just told everybody what you're doing at the moment. But it's, um, it's always cool to sort of, to sort of uh, you know, where did it start, that kind of thing. Um, Andy... I suppose if you don't mind me saying that you're perhaps one of the more experienced members of the panel. <laughs> it's over. Um, what were you doing before you found yourself promoting? Um, I came to London to go to uni uh, when I was 18, which was quite a long time ago, uh, like, like 14 years ago. Um, I was studying banking and finance, which was really boring. Um, and I was working in a bar, uh, kind of club bar called the Elbow Room in Angel, um, which I was, I was managing while I was doing my degree. Um, 
when I graduated, I stayed on doing that, like t- um, managing that bar. But it was quite, it was quite boring then because it, it didn't seem glamorous anymore. So I started kind of doing every Sunday booking bands for maybe six months. It was like the worst weekly night ever. I like didn't know what I was doing at all. Didn't think I needed a sound engineer. I, I, it was like promoter school, so I, I kind of I kind of did that for a long time, and then um, eventually realised I could have kind of more, made more money doing that than than working the bar, um, and I, I didn't enjoy my job, so I quit and 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 then went to do that. And Rob, is that is that a story that sort of you know is that a similar story for yourself, or you know how did you sort of find yourself thinking oh, I want to I want to fly people? It's it's actually quite similar. I did an economics degree and realised that was absolutely terribly boring and I didn't want to go and do some consultancy job or accountancy job like everyone else that was doing the course. So um, we, uh, yeah, just after uni, just decided I was going to do my own thing um, and started off by doing events. We we found this rundown mansion that some guys were trying to turn into a bar. So we just started putting on events there, just like some crazy parties there and then then just started putting holidays on after that so so yeah it's rel- relatively similar just wanted to get away from the anything ridiculously dull and James I, I, I get the impression that you know you weren't immediately from that same sort of business background uh, no actually I think the first Urban Nerds event I think I was in my last year at school or just finished and I was actually um, I was doing a lot of freelance journalism at the time mainly revolving around the grime scene and, and writing for people like Rewind and a couple of bits for Blues and Soul and and I did something for a, a fan, fanzine that my friend was running at the time called Hooker Magazine, which is based in Bristol and um, they wanted to come and launch in London and throw a party for it and because I was in London and I knew a thing or two about grime, they wanted me to put it together. In the end, the, ma- the magazine never came over, but in all the planning, I just... Um, I sort of got a little bit overexcited about the prospect of kind of actually having a heavier involvement with with the music that I was sort of falling in love with at the time and um, decided to uh, to get some help and, and find a venue through a few friends and it just sort of started from there but it, it didn't actually get serious until I was at uni I was studying journalism at LCC uh, in London and I, I'd done two and a half years was literally on the verge of writing and submitting a dissertation. I was sat in a lecture. I had my first major warehouse show pretty much coinciding with the hand-in date. And I just had a really bad day one day and literally had a pivotal moment where I said, I've had enough. Like, I've done what my parents have wanted me to do with GCSEs and A-levels and whatnot. I'm paying to be here. I'm losing money on the other thing while I'm here. Uh, I'm, I'm leaving. And, and, and that was kind of it. And that's when it, that, that was about sort of three years in, that's when it started to become, actually, this this is a bit of a business. That's cool. And Nick, uh, it'd only be fair to really sort of look at how you started and, you know, prior to running parties or running events or your involvement uh, with Boiler Room, what were you doing beforehand? Uh, yeah, my, my sort of route into it all was fairly um, natural, I guess. I was sort of messing about at uni, uh, doing various courses, putting on terrible parties, um, that no one came to and the music was awful. Um, and I was also DJing quite a lot around London. Um, and then I had a, actually a similar, similar moment to James um, where I was quite far into my university course. Um, 
and I was I just started in, interning with a record label, and I was kind of at the point where I was doing that and I was DJing and I was making a fair amount of money off DJing, um, and I kind of just thought I've got to do one or the other and dedicate my time to something. Um, so yeah, I chose music and luckily it worked out at the moment anyway. Yeah, it's going pretty well. It's going all right. Um, so Andy, you mentioned quite honestly straight away that the bands and the acts that you were, you were booking and, and the manner in which your first sort of few events perhaps didn't necessarily um, carry the same sort of professionalism that, that your, you know, your parties do now. How did you see or, or what sort of skills or, or attitudes did you apply to sort of take it up that, that, le that level just from a sort of uh, creative aspect, I, I suppose? To be honest, it, it, just doing loads and loads of failures like doing loads and loads of bad nights and, and that, like I've done a lot more bad nights than good nights. I'm trying, I'm trying to fix the ratio, but you know, it's, I've had a couple, of, a couple of periods where someone's asked me to book something weekly. Um, so the Coronet did a deal with Lock and Load Events when I was, the, I was a booker for a company called Lock and Load Events. And they, they just kind of approached them and said, will you book, will you do a party called Together Every Saturday? And at the time I'd, I'd never done a show that big at all. And, and they were just like, right, book the coronet every Saturday for six months. And, you know, I wouldn't want to own that venue with me booking it, but for me, get to spend whatever, 30 grand a week for six months, you, you come out of it knowing loads without going bankrupt. And so, to be honest, just, just been in a few fortuitous positions where I was able to, to learn without going under. So there's an element of sort of sticking your neck out and, and, and sort of keeping your chin up when, you know, a night sort of draws to a close and you think... Oh. So much. Like, there's, there's a really, really bad... If anyone's ever been to the Coronet, there's a really, like, shit pub. Like, a really terrible pub over the road where they'd have, like, fights and karaoke. And the amount of time I spent in there, watching the queue, drinking a pint, being like, when, when 200 people arrive, I'll go in, not before, and be like... It's midnight, when is it, you know? I think there's that, that moment at every party, even the parties I do now, when it's kind of before 12, you're worried if anyone's gonna turn up at all. Um, I, did, I used to do the same thing, I used to just go away, like walk the streets for half an hour, come back, and then hopefully there's some people there. And Rob, with Snowbox, obviously it's slightly different. I guess it's that matter of like looking at people, you know, booking flights and booking accommodation. Where do you, where do you sort of, have you got a, a special place you go to keep yourself calm? <laughs> Um, no, but if you can suggest anywhere, then I'll go there right now. Like, <laughs> one week away from the festival, it's getting a bit stressful. But, um, uh, but yeah, we, I mean, we don't have the same kind of thing, but um, I think it's more of a financial, financial thing for us when we've got to basically pay 50% of all the hotels up front and all the artists up front and everything like that as well. It's, just, it's basically it's all or nothing, no way to, no way to scale that back. And uh, so I just sit there watching the bookings come through on, the, on my laptop and hoping, hoping, hoping that we're going to break even. <laughs> yeah, we, we call that ticket porn. <laughs> refresh, refresh, refresh. <laughs> we, we love it. Well, I'm going to pass it over to Will. Yeah, so kind of that's the, the backgrounds. But I guess a lot of people here who might aspire to be in your kind of positions would love to know the stories about how the companies that you're now representing came about. So... In that, in that theme, I don't know if anyone wants to kick off and tell us how, how things started with the company you're at now. I guess, uh, I mean, the, the, the main thing now found, because obviously it, it revolves around a festival, so naturally it's the biggest entity. I guess um, 
you know, it's, it's myself and uh, another partner who, who's been promoting for the best part of 17, 18 years, starting in, in the hard house scene way back when. And, um, you know, we, we both, uh, me, me for six, seven years, him for 17, and had done a lot of things and made a lot of mistakes, I guess, as Andy had said. Uh, you know, in, in my case, unfortunately, a lot of it w was with my own money. You know, when I was 19, I, I didn't get out of bed for two weeks once because... I'd, I'd lost an insane amount of money on my first warehouse party. I mean, I don't even know how I found it to pay it back. I mean, you go to some dark places when that happens as a, as a promoter, especially in your early days. But we kind of, we both had our ups and downs. And when we first met, through uh, chance circumstances, actually, I, I first met my current partner because I was doing a warehouse party and had sold 2,000 tickets. And a, a week before, actually, on Christmas Eve, the guy told me that he hadn't got the license. It's when I was quite... Green and green and around Jesus. the gills, so um, yeah, Will popped up as a potential warehouse owner, and we got talking, and um, we just sort of clicked. And I guess what we did, we found, is kind of take all those mistakes and lessons we lessons we we learned in the past, and try and actively produce something really exciting, really credible uh, that didn't make those mistakes on the back end, which made our life easier, and also delivered the best possible thing for the punter, which I guess is you know we. I think quite a few people were shocked at the scale of event we were doing in the festival only sort of a year and a half two years into the brand but in a way we'd kind of we'd been building up to that in our own sort of promotional careers for a long time so we came together with quite a deliberate goal of you know actively learning from our mistakes and creating something new amazing Andy if you don't mind me asking how did uh, how did XOR and the nest later later the nest come about um so I was I was working for myself as an indiv individual promoter and kind of pay, I was DJing at really cheesy places um, to, to no pay names. the bills. Uh, yeah, no names. Um, and um, my current business partner, a guy called Steve Blonde, who he started Fabric and he, he ran Fabric for the first ten years. He owned a load of bars, which I, I DJed for, and I, he bought the Ness, and I was doing an, a night there once a month called Scandalism. Um, which he and I originally started together. Um, and my night was doing quite well. It was always selling out. And it, he was always trying to get me to be the promotions manager. But I, I never really worked for anyone. I don't, I don't really like working for working for someone, doing a job. So I, I kind of kept saying no for months and months and months. Um, and then one night I was DJing for him. I, I turned up absolutely plastered um, and fell asleep behind the decks at the Old Queen's Head. <laughs> um, and so I, we kind of felt really bad. And I was like, kind of met him to apologize. And, and uh, he was like, come and work for me. It's like, no. And then he was like, come in on the nest. And, and then you don't have to work for anyone, but you can just consult. And um, so that happened and it was really good. And then uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't enough for me to dedicate all my time to. So I was still doing loads of events, including loads of parties at XOYO. And I was like, Space is amazing, but the layout shit. Like, someone should do something with it. And so I kind of persuaded him, twisted his arm that every penny I'd ever saved, I put in, and, and we borrowed a load more and, and, and bought XOIA. Nice. Um, who wants to take this up next? Rob? Um, yeah, so, I mean, we were doing, um, we were doing, like, we, we started out by doing holidays. That's like what our main business was. Um, and like summer holidays to absolutely terrible places. Um, so if anyone has any 
18 year old brothers or sisters that want to go to Magaluf, then look us up. But um, we needed to have a bit of a passion project on the side from that. So um, uh, we just we, we 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 love skiing. So we're just like right, okay, we're going to start a start a, a small ski festival. It was only going to be like three, four hundred people, but it's like the concept of just getting some some DJs we liked and getting everyone together, like just basically something that we would we would go on. And um, it turned out that quite a lot of other people wanted to do that as well. So in the first year, instead of being a 300-person thing, it's got, it went to being a 900-person thing, and then which we, we sold out basically two months after we put it on and um, three months before the event. And then um, this year, we've managed to up the capacity. We sold it out again. So it's just, it's like, it, it is just a complete passion project born out of wanting to, yeah, want, wanting to do something that we actually enjoyed and... Like the idea was for it to be completely funded by all the stuff that we didn't enjoy. Nice. And Nick, tell us about uh, that. Yeah, I, I can't actually... Well, I can talk about Boiler Room or... I can't explain firsthand around Boiler Room, but I know the... Well, the general story anyway is... Uh, there's a guy called Blaze who used to run a platform... A uh, magazine called Platform Magazine. Um, and another guy called Tristan who worked for Giles Peterson as a music advisor... Uh, and another guy called Femi, who now went on to run NTS Radio, if any of you have heard, that, heard of that. Um, they got together and basically experimented with music streaming. Um, they weren't the first people to do it. There was, I think one man, DJ One Man was doing it before. Um, but they were lucky because of their connections. They got some really big DJs in, like Theo Parrish. Um, and they were kind of at the right place at the right time. Um, with that whole UK scene, like Jamie XX and yep. all those guys. Um, so they were able to capitalise on that, basically, and get these amazing in-demand DJs to play for them for free. That's the insane thing about Boiler Room. Like we, we never pay anyone to play, which is unheard of and makes my job quite different to most of yours, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where it started, and then as it sort of took off, brands got involved and that's how the business is run, is brands give us money um, and that enables us to do everything we do, basically. And at what point did you get involved? I got involved, I was watching, I think I started watching the second one, um, which I think was Theo, and then I was interning at a record label um, and I got in touch with Tristan over Facebook, actually, because nice. I used to listen to his radio show. Um, and I just said, can I, I'm a big fan of Boiler Room, big fan of your radio. Can I come down and see how it works? Because it's something I'm, I'm interested in getting involved in as well. Um, so I went down there and I used to just take the track lists, get Tris coffee, uh, basically do... Dance at the front. Yeah. <laughs> hype man, general hype man. Do the weather. <laughs> um, yeah, I just used to do that for like a year. And then, or probably like eight months. And then when Boiler Room got to the point where it was growing so much, it got to the point where they needed to bring in more people to help him do his job. Um, and that's when me and Br another guy called Bradley got involved. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we sort of became programmers for, for it, I guess. So I kind of lucked out massively. Put yourself out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I was just doing one. something I was really interested in. And what Andy said about never wanting to work for anyone you didn't get on with. I think that's something I've always done. If I'm not enjoying what I'm doing, I've, I've stepped away from it and I've tried something else. 
Um, I think that's key, really, to have that passion to, to continue doing what you're doing. Sure. Um, and so, like, you guys have all talked about some, some dark days, some kind of worries and stuff. There must have been a moment as well, or, I don't know, a series of moments when it was like, yeah, shit, this is going well. This is, this is something that's going to happen. Perhaps, Andy, after telling us the story about sitting in a pub and waiting, maybe there's some good times you can... Uh, yeah, T uh, two weeks ago we had, um, we've, we've got a thing at XOY where Eats Everything is playing. We have a resident uh, who plays for three months, uh, so there's going to be four this year, and the, f the first one was Eats Everything. Um, and we had Disclosure uh, play, and, and it was pretty amazing. We had, you know, the, more than the capacity of the club waiting outside at 7.30 before doors. Um, it, was, it was the first time I've been nervous before a show in maybe a year, maybe a year and a half. I used to always be really nervous, but it, it's a little bit more routine now because we're doing so many dates, but I was really nervous before this show, to be honest, and, and it, it went really well, so it was the best night I've had in a long time. Nice. And James, perhaps, to pick you up after the... Uh, you know, obviously, like, found festival, you know, do, doing my first festival, albeit on a, a mini scale compared to the others that are out there in London, but, but sort of standing there and looking at it working without any kind of major hiccups last... last um, last June was was incredible and I guess you know it's it's great standing there and seeing so many thousands of people there that you brought to the event but beyond that it's just looking back at all the work and all the work that everyone around you has put in and and think oh my god it's actually come off as we planned for it to come off that that work has seen a direct result rather than another one of those you know late nights where you're having to send your mate out in a cab to South London to go and find some cash because you can't pay the headline DJ or you know, you're skulking home the next day after an after party, had had a good after party, but then you wake up and remember, oh God, we, we you know, last night didn't go so well in, in other respects. Double you know, it's, it's, it's great to stand there and see, you know, it's all those boxes are ticked and, and, and everyone's enjoying themselves. And, you know, that, that was one moment. And I, I think the other was when we did our first found street party in 2012 and somehow, some way managed to spend months getting a license to close off a, a street in the heart of Shoreditch. And we got MK there dropping, I think the very first UK drop of the Storm Queen dub, <coughs> which, was, um, which was quite exciting. And you know, that, that was another moment, just when you can take it outside of the club and into a location that's truly special, which I'm sure you, know, I'm sure you get with Snowbox as, as well. You know, it's, it's, you get a good memory. Amazing. So yeah, I mean, Another thing to sort of, I think a lot of people in the audience would really appreciate knowing about is, is obviously you guys are passionate about music, for one. I guess I'd say that seems like, you know, a true sort of theme. But then, you know, where, where did that passion for music then develop into saying, like, okay, well, I'm running these events. I'm going to make this my full-time thing. I guess with Rob, um, with Snowbox and Mainstay Travel, when did you say, okay, this is going to be all I, all I think about? And it seems like, you know, currently it's taken a lot of your mind space up at the moment. Um, well, I had a few jobs before uni and during uni, and I really hated it when the bosses told me what to do. Like, I just, I physically, I can't take people telling me what to do. So there's no real other way than for me to, for me to work for myself. So that's, that's basically the only option I've got, or I just end up getting fired left, right, and center. And um, so I thought I might as well just do it in, like, we just kind of, it was more like we, followed the, the things that we started to do were the things that we'd like to see happen so we'd like to see this particular holiday happen this particular festival happen we're like why is that not happening so then we put on we put that on and then so 
if it works, it works. If it if it doesn't, it doesn't. But I guess the the downside is that if it does work, then you're too busy actually doing it to actually enjoy the thing that you would really love to be at. But um, but yeah, it's a uh, yeah, it's it's kind of more more necessity than anything else. And, and then after that, following what you actually want to do. And Andy, is that something sort of that you feel similarly with? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I kind of always did it full time um, since uni, but there was a real moment when I was. 27 about five years ago that I decided to really take it seriously I was kind of like having a midlife crisis at 27 been like haven't done anything like it's quite, and I, I was living in this it was kind of like a squat like a pub um had like rats in my room and had to shower around the corner in a gym it was really shit and I was like this isn't working so I applied to join the army and um my flat burnt down uh, the, the whole pub burnt down with, with everything in it. Can I just confirm this is a true story? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, yeah, every, everything I owned went. Um, so I had to go and live with my dad up north for six months while I was waiting for my army application to process. And um, I went for my final interview. I got into Sandhurst, and, and at the final interview, there was this, like, horrible woman, like, sergeant or whatever, and she was, like... I was, like, 27. She was, like, you're a bit old for joining the army. I was, like, I wanted to be, like, fuck you. But I thought, for the next five years, I'm not going to be able to say that to anyone. So I was like, actually, I'm not going to do this. Left, and, and then kind of thought, I, I might as well take it seriously, and, and worked a lot harder than I had prior to that. Like, moved back to London and just, and just kind of worked my ass off. I mean, I don't imagine anyone's got a story quite as interesting <laughs> as that. But, but James, obviously, you know, when did you sort of... You know, again, that sort of essence of taking things more seriously, I suppose. I think, again, it's the past three years and, you know, at first and, and still the, the business, business side of it does, you know, that, that does scare me. And it's something I'm having to learn if, you know, I've had seven years to learn about selling the tickets. Now, in terms of managing what happens after you sell those tickets and where you're going to go from there, that's still a process I'm learning every day. But I think... Um, you know, it's, it's scary at first when it becomes a business, but actually, in the long run, it makes your life a lot easier because certainly, you know, we, we feel that there, there's obviously the, the massive passion and, and creative element and musical side to what we do. But I think the secret to any good promotion really lies in... It's all about processes. You know, it's all about discipline. It's all about thinking ahead, having the right spreadsheets. You know, in that respect, it's, it's no different from any other business. And the promoters that do succeed and, you know, do go on to do things like Andy has done and go into the venue business, you know, I'm, I'm sure you'll vouch for, you know, behind that is, is, is I think, a serious knowledge of, of core business values and, and having the systems in place to be able to, to then have the headspace to do the creative things that you love. And eventually, you know, if you don't have those systems, you'll find that, oh, yeah, I can keep thinking of amazing talent and... And, and keep finding incredible spaces, but it all comes on top of you because the VAT man comes and knocks on your door and you're not ready. Uh, so you kind of, you have to get all that under control and in lock, and then you've got that time to go, right, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing any of that this week or today or whatever, I'm, I'm gonna go and, you know, listen to some new music or, or research something I haven't had time to research and, and put in some offers for a headliner we've never booked before. And, and I think that's really important. Yeah, it's, it's an office job. It is ultimately an office job. Like we, I've just been, like, in the last couple of months, hired a new promotion manager. And the number of people I interviewed who, they want to work in show business, you know, like, 
it's meeting the DJ on a Friday is, is, is what they think the job is. And, it, you know, we, it, we work in an office. That, that's what we do. Yeah, I think th this week, actually, I've done accounts for 90% of it and the rest of it was some meetings with some lawyers. And um, I think for about half an hour to, today, I did something to do with actual music for the festival and, and sort of had a quick think about what we can put on the fan page next week. <laughs> Does that ever kind of trouble you or is it something that you need to keep in, in touch with, the, the balance between being a business and doing like the credible things, showcasing the artists you always wanted to showcase? Like, perhaps if you get this person then you'd absolutely love them but there's not enough people through the door stuff like that and perhaps actually Nick you might be someone to answer that with Boiler Room how much do does business affect what you guys do? Um, yeah as I said what I guess what we do is quite different to uh, the rest of the guys here because we've essentially always operate I mean we don't charge anyone to come to the events we don't pay any DJs um, so there's very, very little money involved in the whole thing. It's really just uh, finding a place to put it on um, and then paying like a sound engineer and stuff like that, um, which at the start obviously was was more complicated. But um, I mean, now we're, we've grown quite a lot. So we have a whole team dedicated to accounts and things like that. So we're quite lucky and we get to focus on the, the music programming ourselves. Um, Without much influence. Sorry? Without much influence from... Yeah, well, I mean, there's a budget there and we obviously have to make... Th you have to make things work. I mean, the aim... I think the aim for pretty much any music business now is just to not lose money. No one's really... You're not making a lot of money. Um, and as Andy says, it's it's an office job. It's not... Um, it's very glamorised. I mean, I, I host uh, some of the shows on Boiler Room and people come up to me and they say, like, oh, you've got the best job in the world. You get to... You just get to turn up every week and say, for the next 45 minutes, it's further. <laughs> Which is true to an extent. But, um, you know, I, sp I spend the whole week sat at a desk, pretty much, uh, booking the shows. Um, so, yeah, often, often people don't realise there's that side to it, I think. Sure. Um, and just, I guess, whilst we're here talking about booking artists, um, how have you guys, you know, to, to open to everybody, how have you guys seen the development of maybe not necessarily the ease, but maybe the um, sort of type of artists that you guys can attract to your events, to your venues now. Like Andy, how have you seen that progress in the amount of time that you've been at XOYO alone? Uh, it, it's, it's kind of an ongoing process because when we started, not that many people wanted to play XOYO, uh, to be honest, it didn't have a great name. And also there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people that I want to book that I ha haven't been able to book yet. Um, but every kind of week and month that goes by, we, we we get someone, you know, and, and really early on, we, we brought in an actual deviation, which is Benji B's night. And I think that probably saved us a year because Benji just picked up the phone to, you know, Jamie XX and MRS and, and, and these people immediately got it. Um, and the residency thing has done that as well. But, you know, I've, I've, I've never put on Dixon or Ame. Like I, I would love to. It's not an issue of money. I'll pay them. But, you know, DJs have loyalty. You know, some, some DJs will only play for me. And, and so it's, it's completely fair enough, but we just keep kind of chipping away. And Nick, how have you seen things at Boiler Room? Obviously now, is it a, a stage where people are, are sort of asking you guys if they can come down and play? Uh, yeah, it's a bit of both. I mean, now, because we've been around for a while uh, and most of the big guys have played, it's slightly different in the way we go about booking it. But we've got the same thing. There's a few people um, who, who won't 
do it, um, no matter how many times we ask them. Uh, some of them cave in to... Some, oh, I can't say. <laughs> uh, some of them cave in to money. Um, so occasionally we do brand, when we do these branded events, that's when we have money to pay them. And that's when, it's basically any branded event, that's a DJ who is playing because he's getting paid. Um, <laughs> look him up. Um, but yeah, in terms of booking, I mean, we get a lot of requests, but um, it, so it sounds harsh, but to be honest, we don't really pay any attention to them because if someone's, unless it's coming from a trusted source, usually we, we, we think we've got our ear to the ground pretty well, so we know who's good. Um, and someone going to, going to you telling them, telling you that they're good is a lot less appealing than you hearing that from someone else or you discovering them yourselves, I think. Yeah, no, definitely. And Rob, um, you know, going into the second year of Snowbox, how has bringing the lineup been? Because obviously, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big lineup for a second year. Yeah, well, um, for us, it's a constant, it's a constant battle, like a constant, because we're, I think we're at an earlier stage with regards to bookings and these guys. Um, so we've got um, bigger ski festivals to go up against one one bigger one um and we've also got we're, we're in the same week as winter music conference in miami and we always with like due to snow conditions and weeks that we have to be in those particular resorts we always have to be the same week as winter music conference so we're like it's a complete battle to find someone that's not playing there and not playing at winter music conference and hasn't got some other commitment so we have to get really creative and we have to um beg, borrow and steal to get what we can, basically. And give people ski holidays. And give people ski holidays. And their families. Yeah. <laughs> and James, we've found, how, have you, how, has, how has the sort of billing developed over the past couple of years? Um, it never seems to get easier. It's, it's, there's some, some people I haven't won round after almost eight years, which is a bit ridiculous. But I think the, the, the ethos we have in, in our office is there's always another act. Uh, particularly now, you know, there's, it's, it, you know, I used to get quite cut up when we couldn't get a certain DJ that we wanted to build a show around, and, and now it's like, do you know what? That's fine, we'll try again another time, but there is literally always another act, and at this particular point in time, there's always another really exciting, you know, completely underground act that we know is doing really well on the clubs, and some of the, some of the bigger people that we're up against that might have some more money or they might have a, a, a better offering in the artist's eyes, which is fair enough. Uh, you know, the, the thing that we have is, is you know, we, we, we have friends and ourselves, we're in and out of the clubs all the time. And, and the most rewarding thing is, is not when you get that amazing top level headliner that you know will deliver X amount of tickets. It's when you get that, that person that's sort of in the middle when you, when you say, release your lineup. And by the time the actual event comes around, they're like headliner material. Then you're like, wow, like we, we did a good job. Like, and, and we we spend a lot of time in our office collectively brainstorming. You know, to get eight acts, we might like write a list of eighty. Uh, and they're, they're literally there's always someone else out there. And and I think if 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 you've got confidence in what you're doing as a promoter as well, then you you can sort of try and stray away from from the more obvious choices and just sort of go with your gut feeling and really push something that you feel is going to work. I think, yeah, that, that, that is a, the best philosophy to have as well because otherwise you risk building a brand around whoever the headliner is, whereas if you're actually building a brand around some, like a lineup that is actually well-crafted or someone that is going to that is going to become big, then you people aren't going to see a DJ. They're coming to found or they're coming to whatever you're putting on. That's cool. 
So, so yeah, before we open it up to the floor for questions, just want to know, if you were starting again now, what would you do and what opportunities do you see uh, within the industries that you're in? So, for example, um, Andy, what you've done with the residency series it was, a, was a big gamble, right? But you obviously have seen that, or you've kind of hoped that it's going to work. Is there any other opportunities that you guys see out there that people could kind of act on? So, so for example, if you were starting again now, um, and you'd got a little bit of promo experience, or you wanted to be in promotions, what what would you kind of see as opportunities around? If we start with Rob, so you want our next big idea? Well, you maybe maybe <laughs> an idea. <laughs> I would, I would maybe maybe an idea that you, that you've that you, that's like perhaps too embryonic for you, or too too small for you guys, but that people could kind I, of... I would say in terms of just purely running parties, um, what I've generally experienced the best parties are, with a crowd makes a party. So if you can build something around a scene of people uh, or a community, um, if you know that's there and you can build something around them, like NTS Radio, that essentially has brought that entire community together. Uh, a friend of mine does a party in Peckham, which is the same thing. He's kind of tapped into... A lot of young, studenty type people, creatives moving there at the same time, uh, who are quite open for experiencing new things and open to experiencing new music. And that's Peckham's got his same little vibe as well. Yeah. Um, so I think if you can find, even if it's just you and your friends, like if you're, if you've got a good crew um, and a good group of people, that's what makes the party rather than the DJs you book um, or the amount of money you're putting into it. I think. Yeah, I'd sort of agree that. You know, if, if you're coming into it and starting to put on parties, the worst thing you can do is just think, there's loads of money in that at the moment, that's going well, I'm, I'm going to put on a party. Because, you know, you might have a few good runs, but eventually you'll get a wake-up call. And when you, when you do get that big wake-up call, it's, it's not, um, you know, it's not nice. And, I, I, you know, I see a lot of people that, that come in, do a few shows, and you can tell that, you know, progressively losing money or getting demoralised. I think to avoid that, the best thing to do is, yeah, have the community, like Nick said, or have a, have a, have a genuine reason for, for doing that party, which I think for all of us, at whatever age and whatever point, when we first started, there, there was a reason. For me, it was, you know, grime music. That was it. That was the reason. It, it, I didn't even think about um, any of the financial implications at all. It's like, why not? Uh, but I, I think you, you need that. You need an edge, and, and and that's really not necessarily even an edge. You just you just need something that you're really passionate about, and you've got to say, I, I'm doing this because this is genuinely different or genuinely improving on something that's out there already. Otherwise, what's the point? Cool. Perhaps a perhaps um something that might be easier to talk about is is the challenges or what you what you think you're seeing too much of that people should perhaps avoid. Um. Well. Uh, I think there's a there's there's quite a lot, it's, it's it's quite dull. There's like quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of new people coming along trying to do things. They're not uh, there's not really many out, ideas outside the box, and so it would be good to see something which is completely completely off the wall. Like just going back to just having to think about what you were asking about before with regards to new things. Then um, I'd like to see I'd like to see something in London. The equivalent of like Sonar Festival South by Southwest, which is just, you know, like a, a club-based, um, a, a club-based thing where the city just completely comes alive, and I think that 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 kind of thing's lacking in London, and 
just ideas like that, which are just like you know, just a, a bit of a gamble, a bit more of a, a bit more of a risk than the standard, than the standard thing. Like for example, Andy putting on, um, Andy putting on the same headliner for three months in a row. I mean, that's like, I, see, seeing that like it, it must have been ridiculously hard to pull off, but he's managed to sell it out twelve weeks in a row. So just like things like that to just you know, just uh, people taking a gamble. I think that, that's that's what I'd like to see. I think you need to. Um if you're trying to get into it as well, you've you got a, people. A lot of the time, people talk about luck, but I, I definitely believe you know you make your own luck. Like yes, yes, we've all had moments where things have gone to plan, but you know you it's it's, it's what you do with that, that that makes a difference. It's identifying that that moment and and the way you deal with it. Like a lot of people, everyone has luck come their way, but I think a lot of people just don't act on it or don't realise what that moment is. And I think for me, it's like when I first started out, it was surrounding myself with the right people and like certainly when I was throwing my first parties and I was still writing you know the reason I started writing freelance journalism when you know when I was 17 is because I literally hounded down like a couple of people and and I would go to parties where I knew they would be there and I, I would stalk them you know because I was so obsessed with with thinking this is what I want to do and why should I not have an opportunity to do it and and no you can't don't start stalking all of us but um yeah. just just names, yeah? Put, put yourself in in the right environment and absorb that environment in a sort of professional manner. Like don't don't hang around a DJ booth, uh, being annoying. That's that's not going to get you anywhere, um, in, unless you're of a certain sex in front of a certain certain DJs. But but <laughs> uh, but but yeah, just just like really immerse yourself like in a scene in a positive way and and get to know the names and the faces of the people that are doing the thing you want to do and research, look into it a little bit deeper r r rather than going, oh, they do that, they're amazing, they, they, they get all these people or they've booked this DJ. Actually kind of talk to them and say, you know, what is your job, what is your day-to-day -day? Um, and, and just kind of get stuck in and eventually people will see the value in those questions and, you know, certainly everyone that works for us has has come from someone else that works for us because they've come on high recommendation and they've really put themselves forward and it's it's very rare that we I don't think we've ever had to go out there and, and ask for a CV because you know that we we, we work in very tight industries and we want to know people are 100% trustworthy. Awesome. Well, thanks very much. That's that's all from us. But we'd like to open it out to the floor uh, if anyone's got any questions at all that they'd like to ask. Don't know. This one's more to uh, James and Rob, but how do you guys, um, like say year one at your festivals, how do you guys market them? Obviously that's a massively general question, but, and also I guess the second question is, um, in terms of like the pull, is, is the headliner sufficient to like make a good pull? Or is there also a hell of a lot of marketing as well? And kind of what's the ratio, I guess? With the, um, with the marketing, I'd say that in the first year, that's where you want to save your money because I, th I think with the start of any event, it's got to start with start with a core crowd. It's got to start with word of mouth. So if you, like we, I think our marketing budget for Snowbox in the first year was less than a grand. We just hammered everything over Facebook. We got it spread through loads of people that were involved in either um, different club nights or um, involved in the snow sports industry. Just got got it out there and it and it did spread by word of mouth it got that it got that viral traction but um so yeah i so yeah i'd, I'd say i'd say try to do that with the marketing i wouldn't really be able to talk much about the headliners because we're lucky enough to have a kind of dual benefit like if 
at the end of the day, if the if people don't like the if people don't like the headliner we've booked, they'll they, we've still got a ski holiday to back it, to back it up with. So maybe that's no pretty sweet deal. I'd I'd say you know that with every act, you know when you certainly when you get to this level, if an act is not delivering X amount of tickets, they shouldn't really be playing because unfortunately. There is a bit of that when, when we're getting to these sorts of numbers. But I think more important than the number of people the headline is pulling is, does that headliner represent everything that's below them? Like for us last year with, with Maya Jane Coles, you know, this year she's far more prolific, but you know, it, it was, was a little bit of a punt last year as, as headliners go. But you know what? The reason it worked best is because her development as an artist and, and the music she was putting out really kind of tied together that, that whole lineup was that was underneath her. It was kind of like, you want that icing on the cake. And it's like, you wanna, you know, a lot of the time we think we've got a lineup, then we write it out and we look at how it looks in a certain order and, and you just go, oh, that's an amazing DJ, but they just don't, it just doesn't fit. You get like a gut feeling about, about how it works. And then I'd say also with marketing budgets, we try and keep them as low as we possibly can because if you've got the right product, it will sell itself. So for us, we can't afford to spend loads on talent and loads on marketing. We spend it on the talent, and if, if you've got something that's genuinely different, then people will, will come, and you, you can sell it on a, a smaller budget. Cool. Anybody else with questions? This one down at the front. Uh, yeah, this is for James and Rob again. Um, I was just going back earlier to you saying like about doing what your parents wanted you to do and stuff when you were younger. I'm in like kind of a similar position. I'm at uni up in Newcastle, but... Um, like, w was like pulling out and trying to go your own way, was that difficult? And uh, was it like going back to square one, like for you and financially, or kind of where did you start with it all? Um, yeah, well, it's always good to have like, have, well, try and find yourself like some, some, kind, of, some kind of income from somewhere. So that, that might come from that. Doing, doing like we had a we had a ticket business that we uh, that was making us money, um, and it might be DJing, it might be something else. So it's good to have that kind of backing. But with regards to what your parents want you to do, then just ignore it basically because they're like they've got absolutely well. I don't know. It's all it's all, it's all relative. <laughs> it's all relative. Sometimes they might know exactly what's best for you, but sometimes they might not. So um, essentially, just yeah, just just do what you want to do, and the earlier you can do it, the better. Like if I I, you know, if I, I yeah, might, drop I out, might. Mate. Drop out. <laughs> <laughs> That's the message. Someone, I went, I actually went for a job interview at Fabric a few years ago, and um, I was really the one thing I was nervous about was because I had dropped out of uni, and uh, yeah, the, one of the things that's always stuck is is someone said to me, um, all the best promoters are uni dropout, so grab the fear. <laughs> <laughs> Drop out is the message. Anybody else? Yeah, just. Um, I'm not a uni dropout, and I've got a job that I actually really enjoy, which is that actually any possibility of becoming a promoter on the side is supposed to do like maybe three a, three a year. I, I think um, that's like the best to not, way. To not make it a priority? To be honest, that's the best way. I always thought at some point I'll grow up and get a real job, and I'll still do nights every now and again, because you can. Like, I don't know if you know the DJ Kiwi, he, uh, he he just funds his his process of being a, of becoming a DJ by doing a, a night once a month for the Queen of Hoxton. Like it's great extra money if that's if you can earn a living another way. Judge Jules is um he's, he's a lawyer. 
he's still doing seasons in Ibiza, but he's actually a trainee lawyer, um, I think in music law or something, because you know he, he's passionate about law as well. And yeah, if, you, if you're not doing it full time, I guess, you know, just think about the creative. Don't worry about the, the pounds and pennies so much. Like, you know, just do it because you love it. I look at Crank Brother, like some of the best promoters, right? Because they can take the time, put on an amazing show. Really, really, you know, every Crank Brother party is amazing because they don't have to do 52 shows a year. But they run a restaurant on the side. Um, any more? This chap in the grey jumper. I've got a question for Nick. Um, obviously, Boiler Room's absolutely massive now. It's been in so many countries. You had your own island that unknown. The showcase at South by Southwest is bigger than most of them. Is there, is there, you've got like a list of places you still want to go or? Uh, yeah, we're, we're sort of uh, expanding a lot this year. There's lots of, uh, there's going to be lots of new things coming up in the next few months that I, I can't really talk about now, but um, it's going to be different areas of the business that we're expanding into. Um, but yeah, essentially, it's just about representing scenes across the world. So if there's something somewhere we think uh, needs to be shown, then we'll go there and do it as long as we don't lose any money. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, I think this year is going to be quite different because essentially we've been doing the same thing for like four years now. Uh, but now it's kind of opening up and uh, like I said, I can't say too much. But um, yeah, the next Big few months, there'll be more exclusive, revealed. Exclusive, exclusive. <laughs> I think that's uh, about all we've got time for, sadly. But um, just wanted to say that we, we actually we ran a radio show for a year and three of the panel here have been on it. So if there's a load more stuff that you can kind of go and check out on our website, edify.kk, and I'm sure there's loads and loads of stuff um, that these guys are going to be up to in the next year. It sounds like everyone's on a good course. So stay tuned with these guys, and thanks so much for coming. And if you just have you a buddy. round of applause. Thank you, everyone. Have a nice evening. We're all done. We're all done. Cheers. <laughs>